So on uh, Saturday, Wendy and I went out for breakfast to Broadway's in Barhaven. And I had the breakfast special. Uh, actually, was it Friday? It was Friday morning we, we went. And I had the breakfast special, which is two poached eggs with sausage and beans on rye toast. And I always get HP sauce on the side. And as Wendy and I were uh, sat across from each other, my eyes glanced upwards towards the TV. And on the TV was a hockey recap of the night earlier. And as I watched a couple of seconds of the game, I saw a sign that this young lad was holding up. And when I think of sports signs, I think that someone has taken the time um, to put pen to paper and to craft a special message. They've searched through the messy everything drawer in their kitchen to find that one Sharpie that still hasn't yet dried up. And then they've looted the craft area of the house to find a large enough piece of card that it can be seen, but small enough that they can bring it into the arena with them. They've also cleared space on the dining room table. And after some, think, some time of thinking hard, they've crafted that special message that not only the players will see, but also the viewing, viewing public, including a Welshman in a restaurant the next morning who's waiting for his special, his breakfast special. So in other words, uh, there's a level of commitment that's required to create a sign. And that's one reason why I've never created a sign. I mean, I only just recently got my first ever Red Blacks toque, and uh, that was a Christmas present. So I'm not a big sports fanatic. I'm not a sign writer. But this young lad was a sign writer. And I've seen many signs. Uh, you know, I've seen ones that say, so-and-so, you're the best. I've seen ones that say, come on, team. I've seen ones that say, let's go, sports team, let's go. And then sometimes the signs single out a specific person. I love you, specific player. Or specific player, will you marry me? Specific player, you're the best. Or you can do it, specific player. But this young lad, he went one step further. He wrote something so generous so encouraging, so unprecedented, something so Canadian that it nearly took my breath away. This is what this young lad wrote. He wrote, you're all talented. (laughs) That's actually really what he wrote on the sign. You're all, all talented. Every single one of you down on the ice right now, And on the bench, and the coaches, and the referee, and the Zamboni driver, and the cheerleaders, you're all talented. And you know what? This young lad was right. And what this young lad did at that moment in time is he broke down all barriers between teams, and nationalities, and cities, and jerseys. Because according to this young lad, it wasn't about who won and who lost. Because they were all winners. They were all talented. And my hope and prayer is that there were hockey players on that rink at that moment in time who looked at that little sign up in the stands, and for for, for that little moment, the score didn't matter because they'd read that message. You're all talented. Let's turn to uh, Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. 
which says this. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am, I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. The king is dead. Long live the king. Moses is dead. Long live Joshua. The book of Joshua picks up where the book of Deuteronomy left off with hardly even a pause for breath. Moses is gone, this epic leader who'd been a permanent fixture on the horizon in front of the people of Israel after leading them out of slavery is now gone. This man who had represented the people of God before the face of God himself is no more. We read in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 7, it says this, um, Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated, which means he still had energy. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And then the very next verse after this, is, it, it says this in verse 9 of Deuteronomy chapter 34, just the page before Joshua 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. The year is about 1400 BC, and the curtain rises not on Joshua the fighter, but on or, or on Joshua the, gen, the general, but on Joshua the nation leader. With the death of Moses comes the end of the wandering generation. And now with a new generation, Joshua faces the Jordan River and the borders of the promised land. The Israelites are Joshua's inheritance. Moses is dead, Moses is gone, and then God gives Joshua straight away these marching orders in verse 2 of chapter 1 of Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. So this is a gift. What we see first and foremost is that this is a gift. What's going to happen next is a gift from the Lord. God has a plan for this region and for his people. A brave new world is their inheritance. Now, as we read through the book of Joshua, I'm going to be taking at minimum one chapter a day uh, each Sunday, which means I won't be able to go into depth through every verse. But my plan is to give you an overview of the chapter and then to take up the microscope and to maybe focus on one or two things that we can take home each week. So this is the high-level view of Joshua chapter 1. After the transition from Moses over to Joshua, outlined in verse 1 and 2, God then gives Joshua a sneak peek of the gift that he's giving over to the Israelites, he outlines the borders of the land, which will be theirs in verse 3 and 4. You can read that. Though it won't be actually until the time of David that this prophecy is fulfilled in its fullness. And like I said before, in verse 3, God says to Joshua that, he, that it's a gift. He's giving it. Which means, and what this means, because it's a gift... This is not something which they earn. What this means is that God's going to be doing most of the heavy lifting. 
He then promises in verse 5 that no one is going to be able to withstand them. And then in verse 6, he promises that he will be with them. He promises his presence. Now, there's one author who makes an important point regarding these verses. Um, He says that there's a danger of automatically applying what we read in Joshua to us. We can create our own promised land in our minds And then we can say, Lord, you need to take me there. You you have to bless me as I walk into this. But this is dangerous. And it's not really biblical either. Because the entering of the promised land in in Joshua happened in history at a specific time to a specific, specific group of people. And so we have to be very careful about simply porting over the promises from the Bible straight into our lives and saying, that's also for me. But having said that, this guy called Joseph Coleman, sorry, Joseph Colson, he, he, he said this, but we can make a legitimate transfer of promise or principle from the specific context of the ancient situation to the general human context in all ages. So there is a way that that we can take it from this specific place to everyone, everywhere. And then he goes on to say this, God gives Christians all the land of their experience for an eternal inheritance. Even though Christians may suffer reverses in this life, ultimately no enemy of the soul can stand before those who trust in God. No, no Christian ever awoke to find that God had forsaken him or her. And I love this thought, this idea that God has has given us the land of our experience for an eternal inheritance. But what does that mean? I think it means that none of our experiences here on earth will be wasted, that God is using all of this in order to bring us home. Then we read on in verse 7, After promising his presence, God then encourages Joshua to be strong and courageous. He says, only be strong and courageous, which is another way of saying that strength and courage is of paramount importance. He is so key that he is is strong, that he is courageous. And what is the source of, of, of Joshua's courage and strength? Well, it makes it clear, God's presence is the source of, of Joshua's courage and, and bravery. Because what he was being asked, what, what this task that he was given was way beyond his human limitations. Leading the nation of Israel is one of these jobs that you could never prepare for, you could never go to university for. It's a bit like being the prime minister or the president. It's such a unique task that you can never go into that job going, I know exactly what to do. You just have to start. You have to take one day at a time, and you have to trust the Lord. It's a bit like how I felt when I became a father for the first time, suddenly transitioning from the blissful, what I know now to be the blissful existence of no children to suddenly being responsible for the health and welfare of a human being. You can read and study and psych yourself up and paint the room and get the car seat, but then when that little squirming mess of humanity is in your hands, I love you, Enya. 
all your nicely laid plans go out of the window. You start to panic and you start praying like never before. Now times that reality by two million people. All these people looking to you, all these people trusting you, all these people having expectations of you, all these people expecting you to have the answers, which is why so closely linked with this, with this command to be strong and courageous is this promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. You also have to remember that Joshua is taking over from the legendary Moses, and those are huge sandals for him to be stepping into. And then we read on, and then we move on to verse 7, where he's told, yeah, to be obedient. And, and also verse 8, and then, we, and then at the end of verse 8, it's prom, there's a promise of success. And then God repeats the command to be strong and courageous in verse 9. And then again, because God is with him, God's presence is there, therefore be strong and courageous. And then Joshua leaps into action And he starts to spread the word throughout this camp that in three days' time, we're going to cross the Jordan River. And we read that in verse 10 and 11. And then the remainder of the chapter, which we won't be focusing on much, um, switches gear and focuses in on Joshua addressing uh, a particular two and a half tribes, who are the Reubenites and the Gadites, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. And they seem to have some kind of a special deal going on. So what I'd want is to take maybe two or three minutes here is to pause and to look at what's going on here so that we understand, and then we'll, we'll move on. So let's read verses 12 to 15, which says this. Um, verse 12 of Joshua 1, and To the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the words that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest, and I will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you, and they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And you may be thinking, what on earth is going on? Well, this is what's going on. Well, let me explain in a minute what's happening. But first of all, let me tell you what happens in my house whenever I ask my girls to do chores. What, what their immediate response is. Whenever I ask them, they always say something along the lines of, of course. I totally understand my responsibility as part of this family. <laughs> and I will throw myself into this job with all of the energy and the attention that you deserve as my father. And frankly, it doesn't really matter if my sisters help me out or not, because I know my responsibility, and I'm going to make sure that it gets done. Actually, that's not the first thing that they say. It's not even the second thing that they say, or the third thing that they say. In fact, I have yet to hear them say anything close to this, but what I do witness is that as soon as we, the task is handed on, is that they make sure that their sisters understand the task. They, under, they, they, they make sure their sisters understand what their responsibility is. 
And so their first job after I hand over this task is that they take on the responsibility of becoming the four girl, you know, the foreman or the four girl, and making sure that everyone else is pulling their weight. And then Wendy or I usually wade in and remind them who the real boss is, which for these, in this instance, isn't God, it's actually us. And then with a little grumbling and griping, they finally get to it. But why do they insist on making sure that the others are pulling their weight? Why did I do that when I was a kid? Why did you do that if you had brothers and sisters? Because no one likes to feel like they're working when others aren't. No one likes slackers. So the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh had a pre-existing deal, which we find about earlier in Numbers chapter 32. Because what had happened was that the Israelites arrived at the border of the promised land at the Jordan River. And in order to get to that river, they had to cross the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And it says in Numbers chapter 32 verse 1 that this was a place for livestock, which means it was good pasture. It was good eating ground. And so the leaders of Reuben and Gad came up to, Joshua, uh, up to Moses while he was still alive, and they put in the request that they could settle there rather than crossing over the Jordan. Then Moses gets super angry with these, two, with these two tribes, and he tells them that if they settle on this side of the Jordan, that it will have more of a disheartening and discouraging effect on the other Israelites than when the spies came back with a bad report 40 years earlier. So Moses, I, I think that what Moses is afraid of is that they're going to have another mass, mass turning back, another quailing in front of this promise. And so Moses is angry, then Reuben and Gad leave, and they come back with a change in the request, which says this, okay, let our women and children establish themselves here, but we will go over and fight. When the fighting's done, then we'll go back and, and inherit our land. And so Moses accepts this proposal, and so the two and a half tribes, these eastern tribes, join the rest of the Israelites in taking the land. And as we see later, it's not until Joshua 22 that the eastern tribes, also known as the Transjordanian tribes, actually return to their new homes. So now that we've had a bit of a good overview of chapter 1, I want to leave you with something that you can take home, something that gives us uh, a pretty deep glimpse into the kind of life that God considers to be successful. And so the first thing to realize, first of all, is that the goal is success. And in, in, the, in, the, in Joshua chapter 1, it's uh, specifically regarding the success of the Israelites. But I believe that there is a solid transfer from the success of the Israelites to our success as well. So let's start with this concept of success. We all want to live lives of success. No one wants to live a life of failure. No matter how deep in the pit you are or how many regrets you have, you all want success. Now, how we define success may be different from individual to individual, um, but we all want success. But so for our purposes here today, we're going to start with this ideal, ideal of success and move backwards, which will help us to keep the goal in mind while tracking the steps that help us to get there. So let's start with the latter part of verse 8, which says this, um, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So success, 
is the goal. And we can look back to verse 6, which shows us what that success looks like. And success for the Israelites looked like inheriting the land that God swore to their forefathers. That was success for them. And like I explained earlier, success for us would be to step into the life that God has for us. We, we might call it living more abundantly. And I shared that, that quotation earlier that said, God gives Christians all of the land of their experience for an eternal inheritance. And so we need to stop looking back at Egypt and longing for, for Egypt, but instead moving boldly into the life that God has for us. And it doesn't necessarily, in fact, it probably doesn't mean a bigger house or winning the lottery, but it does mean living a full life, a life overflowing with meaning and with purpose, with the promise of God right there at your side. That's a successful life. Now, there are some people who consider the book of Ephesians um, as somewhat of a New Testament um, link up with the book of Joshua, because there's a theme in each of them, which is living in the light of the inheritance which we have, claiming what Christ has already won for you. And so as you're reading through the book of Joshua, remember, read, read a chapter a day. If you have any questions, let me know. Uh, but, but while you're reading through the book of Joshua, also read through the book of Ephesians and just see how they mesh, what the links are there. And in, the, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22, it tells us to, to put off our old self. So you imagine that we're there at the border of this new life with, with all the past and the history behind us. It says, to, it says to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be, re, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, be walking forward and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is our inheritance and it is phenomenal. And so the promised land was the inheritance for the Israelites. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 is kind of like the inheritance for the believer nowadays. The Israelites had to put off Egypt. They had to put on the promised land. And this is success. But there are too many people, there are too many Christians who've left Egypt, who've experienced salvation, but have spent their lives wandering through the desert of life. They've left Egypt, but they still secretly long for it. Egypt is still in their hearts and minds, and the Bible describes these people as barely saved, just saved. In fact, we read about it in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 15, uh, as it talks about God's consuming fire on judgment day, burning up all of these people's works and investments. They are not burnt up themselves, but, but if you will, they get into heaven without even the shirt on their back. These are the Egypt Christians. And so the key to get Egypt out of your mind and heart isn't to go back or long or look back at Egypt, but it's to go forwards. It's to move on. It's to cross the Jordan River. And so God's calling us to, to walk bravely into the land of our experience, to embrace God's view of success, and to walk into the inheritance that he has for us. And so what is the key to this success. The key to this success, how we know we're on the right track, is we have courage. We have to be brave. We have to have strength. And we read that in verse 6. Be strong and courageous, for, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their forefathers that I might give them. So there's no success 
without, without courage. No change ever takes place without the courage to challenge the status quo. So this new, new generation of, of, of Israelites had to overcome the fear that was instilled in them by 40 years of bedtime stories of the scary giants over the Jordan River. It was ingrained in their brain. This, this nation wasn't a trained army. It was a, a, a nation of homeless ragamuffins. They had always been on the move. They had not gone to military school. They were wanderers. And so for them to cross the Jordan River, it could not require an impressive resume because they didn't have it. What it required is courage. It required strength. It required that inner stalwartness, that steadfastness, that steel uh, that refused to allow the fear and the butterflies and the nerves and the negative voice whispering inside to have the final say. It, re- it required true courage. But where did this courage come from? It couldn't just generate out of thin air. Courage never just magically, um, magically appears. Courage has to have a foundation. There's no such thing as courage for courage's sake. And what is, it, what is this quality that brings courage to life. Obedience. Let's read verse 7, which says this, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all, or to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have, oh, let's pause there. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. So the key to unlocking courage in your life is obedience. And why is it obedience important? Why isn't courage enough? Because obedience means that we're going to allow someone else to give us the marching orders. And for us as, as, for us as Christians, it means that, that our rule for life, it doesn't come from in here. It comes from out there. It comes from actually in here in the Bible. You, you see, God's not looking for Rambo. He's not looking for someone to wade into life struggles wielding faith like a machine gun, full of courage, but no wisdom. God wants the source of our courage to be obedience, to take our cues from God himself. You see, when we trust in our own understanding, we end up in the same ruts over and over again. And if the Israelites had done merely what made sense to them, then they would have turned tail and run. They needed obedience to give backbone to their courage. And, and why is it that, that obedience is the ground where courage grows? I think it's because there's something that, that, that happens when we faithfully follow God's commands that opens up to us a landscape that we would never have seen before. Think about it. What military strategist would have come up with the idea of marching around a walled city numerous times before making a loud noise as a sound, solid military strategy? But that's what later on God asks them to do with the city of Jericho, which is why it's absolutely key at this moment in time that God stresses the point of obedience. Because in obedience, what happens is that God's people move beyond their store of of mental resources. They open themselves up to this wisdom and knowledge that is way beyond themselves. It opens them up to the wisdom of God himself. And sometimes, as in the case of the city of Jericho, it looks foolish. And sometimes, in the case of the cross of Jesus Christ, it looks foolish. 
Yet God calls us to this radical obedience that resists the urge to cave. So, what leads us to feel free to have the courage to obey? Well, it has to be trust. There has to be trust there that leads us into obedience. We have to trust first, and then we, then we obey. And we see that in verse 5 of Joshua 1. It says, Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And so, what we're seeing here is that, is, is that we're not called to obey a God who arbitrarily calls us to obedience. He's not calling us to obedience through fear. He's calling us to obedience through trust. And so even before God calls them to obey him, he displays his credentials. He says, this is who I am. Now place your trust in me. He says to Joshua, I will never leave you or forsake you. God said, obey me because you trust me. So maybe you're thinking, but when did God ever prove himself trustworthy to me? When, when has he ever proved himself faithful to me? Maybe you're looking at a history of broken dreams, of failed relationships, of damaged hurts, um, and, and you're asking, why should you trust God? And I don't want to make these, uh, to minimize these uh, very real questions that we all have, but what I am asking you to consider is this. When Jesus died on the cross, he proved absolutely categorically and absolutely that God is for you because Jesus didn't have to die for us. He could have left us to struggle along and come face to face with our own with the consequences of our sins, but he didn't. And in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10, it says this. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10 says this. Amazing verse. Um In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And what that word propitiation kind of means is is the sacrifice. So in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so John is saying that that the very definition of love is Jesus hanging on the cross for you so that you would not be held accountable for your sin. So, so, so the proof of God's trustworthiness is nailed onto a crossbeam. And so God is saying to us, just as I was with Moses, just as I was with, with, with Joshua, so I will be with you. If you place your trust in me, then you can bank on this truth that I will never leave you or forsake you. So God earns our trust first, then based on this bedrock of faithfulness, he calls us to obey. But there's one more step on this route to success. Just as courage comes before success and obedience comes before courage and trust comes before obedience, so there is something that comes before trust, and that is simply this, knowing God. We cannot trust someone who we do not know, and we cannot we cannot trust someone who we do not know. And so trust comes through knowing God. We, we need to be familiar with him and his word. We need to be familiar with his character and his track record. And we read that in verse 8 of, of the book of Joshua chapter 1. 
verse 8 says this, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Okay? So we know God when we read his words to us. That's when we know God. So let me be clear on something. This is more than just book smarts. This is more than just knowing Bible, Bible trivia. This is even more than memorizing scripture, though it includes memorizing scripture. This is about knowing the God of the Bible. And the only way to know the God of the Bible is to read the Bible of the God. To open up the Bible and pray this. God, show me who you are. Reveal to me what you're like. You see, maybe you're the same as me, but when I read the books of the law, my mind goes straight to right and wrong and the do's and don'ts. But for the, but for, for the people of Israel, in addition to these things, the book of the law was a precious thing because it showed them who God is. It showed them what his character was like. This, this, this nothing tribe of ex-slaves had a glimpse into the very heart of God himself because of the books of the law. And this is why it says, the books of the law shall be always on your lips. So it's not a command in the way that we think it is. It's a reminder to remember who God is, to recall his character. And from that meditation on, on how God has revealed himself comes trust. And from that trust springs true obedience. And from that obedience emerges courage. And from that courage comes success. But it starts with the Bible. It starts with knowing who God is. It starts with opening these pages and saying, I want to know you. I want to love you more and more as you reveal yourself to me. And it's not just a linear line. You know, it's more of a tapestry. It weaves in and out. Uh, one thing feeds into the other. You can reverse it as well. You know? It, you know, if you want to know God, then you have to grow trust. You have to get more obedience. You have to get more courage. You know, it, it's, it's, it works forwards and backwards. And sometimes God will have you focus on one thing. Maybe he'll say, I want you to focus on courage. Or I want to, you, you to focus on obedience. And there are times when you feel that your faith is slipping and the doubt is creeping in. For me, that happens on a weekly basis. And so you do what you don't feel like doing. You pick up the Bible knowing that it's going to be good for you. And trust starts to grow once again, which leads to obedience, which leads to courage, which leads to success. Because as God reveals himself to you in the quietness of your room, something unforced happens. You start to trust. You start to obey. You start to experience courage that you never thought you would have. And from that courage comes a conviction that you're living a successful life. Maybe not according to the world's standards, but who cares what the world thinks? Because we're being judged by a standard uh, that's infinitely more important, God himself. But what's the one thing that you cannot chase? What's the one thing that you do not chase? The one thing that you cannot chase is success. Success is the one thing in God's eyes that is not yours to grab, but it is his to grant. It is his grace that grants this success. But what we can do is to start to grow in us um, an environment 
that, that lends itself to creating this life that God loves to bless with success. And this life is one of courage, of trust, of obedience, but first and foremost of knowing the God of the Bible through reading the Bible of the God. That young lad watching that hockey game had a message, and I know I was laughing at it and it was kind of funny, but he had a message that could have spoken value into the hearts and minds of anyone who took the time to read it. You're all, what, all talented. And our greatest cheerleader is up in the stands holding a message that will speak courage into our hearts, into the hearts of the most fearful Christian. But just like the Israelites, we need to read it. We need to meditate on it day and night so that we can obey it, so that God can make our way prosperous and successful. 